0: We're going to do some really heavy lifting here today, and it's going to be coming as we cover the life of a man who was by the foundation figure for the people of Israel. In fact, if you have your study notes, if you look at that first verse I put there, Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we're going to try to master a theological concept today. And... Uh, it's critical to the Old Testament and really to all of Scripture. So, I'm just going to have to ask you to work really hard with me today, okay? Yeah. So, I'm going to have to ask you to really stay with me and work really, really hard and love every minute of it, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, in Genesis chapter 1 through 11, which we, we kind of have already charted, both God's goodness and also the downward spiral of the human race. And in the first chapter, God blesses Adam and Adam and his descendants disobey. So God begins again. And in Genesis 9-1, it says that God blesses Noah. But things go from bad to worse. And there's kind of this climax at Babel where people say, we will make a name for ourselves. We'll be like God. We'll devote ourselves to our own glorification. And so we wonder, as we've been reading these in the first chapter of the story, is God going to run out of patience? Is His dream for community among human beings that are made in His image going to be lost? Well, it's not. And God will begin again, and He's going to work with one man. It's a man who was originally named Abram. God changed His name to Abraham. So, in the course of my teaching this morning, if I use Abraham, it might be free His being named Abraham, but they'll just keep things from being that confused. And his wife, Sarah, who get named Sarah, so you'll, you'll know uh, who I'm talking about. Alright, and by the way, Abraham means father of many. Later on, we will say father of many nations. God's going to form a covenant with Abraham, and by the way, covenant is a key word for us today. It's interesting that we know a lot more about uh, ancient covenants today than we did a hundred years ago, based on a lot of archaeological ex- expeditions that have been done And we have now numerous texts from the 4th, 14th and 13th century B.C., especially from the Hittite texts that were found where these kings had uh, a covenant with their subjects. So I'm going to give you a definition. I wrote it there in your study note. A covenant is a means to establish a binding relationship where none existed before based on faithfulness to a solemn vow. And sometimes covenants were unilateral. That means they were between a more powerful person and a less powerful person. Kind of like a king and his subject. And sometimes they were bilateral. Where both parties agreed to a covenant of equals. It was like a covenant of friendship. The Bible says that David and Jonathan had a covenant of friendship. My wife and I were in a small group several years ago and one of the things that they had to be in the small group was a covenant. You had to sign. you you agreed that Unless you were sick or out of town, you would be at every meeting, you agreed that you would read the chapter for the week, you agreed, and you made a covenant among those people that this is what we're going to do. And so God is entering into a covenant with human beings. This is something pretty incredible. He's promising something of himself to fallen people. So I want to focus today quickly on four encounters that Abraham has with God. And, and we'll see the nature of this covenant become clearer and sharper and, I think, deeper. So, just back up to chapter 11 real quick, verse 31. It says, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldean to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years And he died in Haran, chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples of earth will be blessed through you. So God's command right out of the gate is to Abram is to leave. Leave your country, leave your people, I guess in those days it would be your tribe. Leave your father's household, leave everything that's safe and familiar, including leave your old old gods. Now, Abraham had not known the true God prior to this. But I want you to look at Joshua 24.2. I put this verse on your study notes. Joshua is saying to all the people, he says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, who's Terah? Father of Abraham. Terah, father of Abraham, and Nahor lived beyond the river, and he's referring to the Euphrates River there, and worshiped other gods. So there they are. They're worshiping these different idols, the different false gods. And that was one of the whole points that Nate was making last week: is that the moon is not the god, God created the moon. The sun is not the God. The animal is not the God. The created things are not God's. But God created them. I was really interested in my studies this last week as I was reading about the Hebrew culture. They never refer to going outside into nature. They always say going out into creation. And one of the interesting things about this whole uh, first uh, creation story is that in all the other creation stories that, that come about, The gods are fighting with one another, they're immoral, and human beings are just the lackeys. They're just the the slaves to do the bidding of the gods. But in this creation story, the pinnacle of God's creation is human beings. And so it's just, it's an incredible thing. Now, there's an Old Testament principle that might be called the principle of separation. God says, I want you to be separate from the other gods and the other cultures that are around you. Their values and their priorities and their identity. Be separate from that because I have a mission for you. And that's what verse 1 He says, Leave your country, your people, your fathers, and father, go where? He says, Go to the land I will show you. And I think this is a little vague. You know, I, I, I think you'd agree. This isn't, you know, there's not much to tell his wife Sarah, and my experience is that wives like to know the details. You know. <laughs> Kevin Harney has an interesting perspective on this in his book called Creating New Community, Life-Changing Stories from the Pentateuch. And here's what he says. Imagine the conversation they must have had. And remember, these are real people. Just think what this interaction what it sounded like. Sarah, pack up all your belongings. We're moving away from everyone and everything familiar to us. Where are we going? I don't know exactly, but I'll know when I see it. You have to believe that Sarah would have asked what any wife would ask. How will we know if we get lost? Whom will we ask for direction? And Abraham replies, we won't get lost. God will tell me when we get there. God who? Because <laughs> remember, Sarah didn't know this God. I didn't catch his last name. This would be the only trip in human history when a wife would say, where in the world are we? And her husband would say, God only knows, and he'd be speaking the literal truth. So, just a little background here. Abraham is not some uncouth nomad who has nothing to lose. Verse 5 tells us that he was a prosperous merchant. He's accumulated many possessions, and he had a whole unit of servants. He lives in the Beverly Hills section of a very civilized Mesopotamia. He's living in Haran, and it's listed in Ezekiel 27, 23. It says it's one of the great commercial centers of the ancient world. It's right on the Euphrates River. And in that community, Abraham was known, and he was respected, he was successful, and he was secure. He's told to take off to a barbaric wilderness called Canaan, where he has no land, no network, no connections, no prospects, This move is going to be financial, vocational, cultural, and could be even literal suicide. Nobody does that, at least nobody in their right mind. on the other hand, there is this promise from the voice of God. Abraham, you're going to be a part of something bigger than you can even imagine. And so the essence of this promise consists in one single word. Look again at verses 2 and 3. I want you to see if you can pick out this word. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whatever whoever curses you, I will curse. All people of the world will be blessed through you. Remember initially back in Genesis, it was God who wanted to bless Adam and Eve. And then remember that he wanted to bless Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And God says, I will make a great nation. Now, we already know from chapter 11 that his wife, Sarai, was barren. She was childless. And God says, I'm going to make your name great. Do you remember what group of people said, we're going to make our name great? It was the people of Babel. God loves to exalt people if they come to Him humbly, but He just takes arrogant people and He doesn't exalt them because He knows that they'll be destructive to everybody else. God wants to initiate this covenant of blessing with Abraham. And remember I mentioned there's two kinds of covenants. A bilateral covenant between two equals. Or there's a unilateral covenant between a stronger partner and a weaker partner. So in this covenant between God and Abraham, is it bilateral or unilateral? That's the question. (laughs) Unilateral. Good. That's right. In unilateral covenants, the stronger partner always is after something, at least in human covenants. Water rights, more land, sheep, cattle, women. The stronger partner is always having an agenda on their mind of what they want to get from the the lesser partner. So here's the $40,000 question. What does God, the stronger party, get out of this deal? I mean, he knows the human race. The first 11 chapters of the Bible have are been a setup for this. You know, The human race means heartache. It means ingratitude. It means folly and corruption and sin. So what does God get out of this covenant? I think he gets somebody to bless. He gets somebody to pour out the affection and the warmth and the love of his heart. This is why throughout the Old Testament, the writers just seem to be staggered. They're almost undone by the fact that God would make a covenant with human beings. This is why in the Old Testament, they were first covenant 285 times. God is always the God of the covenant. You might see, depending on the translation that you use, a phrase that is primarily characteristic of God. It goes along with His holiness that always says this, the steadfast love of the Lord, or the steadfast love of God the faithful love, the covenant love, the covenant making and the covenant keeping God. And so the key phrase comes out at the end of verse 3. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You know, sometimes when people think that Israel has been called the chosen people, it means that they think that they were chosen to be God's favorite. You know, and that they were chosen to get an inside track into heaven. That they were chosen and, and other people were rejected by God. But this is dead wrong. From the very beginning, from the very first encounter, Abraham and his family were chosen to be kind of a model community that would cause the whole world to be intrigued by and to love and to follow the God of the covenant. You could put it this way, not to be sacrilegious. For God so loved the world that He made a covenant with Abraham that all the world should be blessed through Him. Paul writes about this in Galatians three eight. He says, The Scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and He announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. And so the gospel was announced in advance through Abraham. You know, you've heard of the great conviction. That has to do with evangelism. It didn't really start in Matthew 28. It really starts in Genesis 12.3. In fact, Paul, writing later in Galatians in verse chapter 3, verse 7, says, Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. And so this God comes to Abraham and he says, Leave everything and go where I tell you. Now, Abraham could have stayed home. Because I'll tell you what, life in Heron was probably pretty comfortable. It was safe, it was secure. And the leave to go you know, into the wilderness was not a very good career move. For sure, leaving would be hard. Now we come to verse 4. This says the whole story of the Old Testament hinges on one single phrase in verse 4. Two words. Abraham went. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And he bet, his, he bet the farm on God. I just want to pause for a second and just say, have you ever trusted God like that? Has God ever asked you to leave anything? Maybe it's to leave an idol. To leave a sin. To leave a fear. To leave an addiction. Does God ask you, or is He asking you maybe to go someplace? Or to do something? Maybe here at Water's Edge in the New Ministry, or maybe in our community, or even maybe in another place. You fill in the blank. Do you ever have to trust God like that? All right, God, I'll go. Think about the crossroads that Abraham was at and what his life would have been if he had stayed in a safe place. I think you need to understand this about Abraham. He is not a pillar of spiritual perfection. One of the first things that happened is is he's going down to Canaan there's a famine and so he has to go down to Egypt where there's more food and some other time we'll talk more about what's going on in Egypt with all the, the fertile ground there and and in those days, travel was extremely dangerous, especially if you're a woman, because you had no rights. so women depended on the protection of their husbands. So look what happens in chapter 12, verse 11. These are the first words that were recorded of Abraham in the Scriptures, this great man of faith. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When you Egyptians you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. I don't think this was a great moment in the history of husbandry. (laughs) And Sarah gets stuck in Pharaoh's harem, and God has to intervene, and the Pharaoh of Egypt ended up having to give a lesson on integrity to Abraham, the man of God. In fact, as I was studying about this, one of the characteristics of Egypt was the, the aspect of of value within their culture was truthfulness. And Pharaoh comes and he says to Adam, you know, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? And uh, so you can read about that there in chapter 12. And so he sends Sarai and and Abraham on their way. You'd think that the lesson would would have struck a deep chord with Abraham, but it doesn't because in chapter 20 he uses the same lie with another king by the name of Abimelech, Abimelech. So, you can see, Abraham is not a pillar of spiritual perfection. But he does get some things right. And in chapters 13 and 14, especially as it relates to possessions. In chapter 13, there's a conflict between his staff and and the employees of his nephew, Lot, over some grazing rights. And Abraham deliberately gives Lot the, the best choice of whatever land he wants, even though he's the elder one and he could have insisted he let Lot take the best land. But Abraham experiences God's blessing because he trusted enough to be generous. By the way, in our midweek studies this week, we'll be studying more specifically about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and also the story of Jacob. Because as I mentioned last week, we just don't have time to, to cover everything on Sunday morning that, that we've been studying. And then in chapter 14, Lot is captured. And uh, there's this raid that comes down and from a king in the east. And to show you how prominent Abraham was, the Bible tells us that he had 318 trained soldiers on his staff. And so in a daring rescue attempt, he saves Lot. And then two kings come to Abraham, and they represent two completely different ways of dealing with possession. One is the king of Sodom, and he offers to allow Abraham to keep all the spoils of war. But there's one condition. He would have to give his allegiance to the king of Sodom. And the message is this. Powerful men are allowed to grab and keep whatever they want. And so he invites Abraham to be a part of this coalition. And Abraham, at a great cost to himself, says no. And he he gives a great deal over to the king of Sodom in order to remain free. The other king is just mentioned briefly. His name is Melchizedek. He's the king of a a place called Salem. And the Bible says that he was a priest of the Most High God. In other words, Abraham finds that God is at work in people and places that he didn't even know that God was at work in. Because up until this time, he thought he was the only one. Says somebody else out there knows God. And so Melchizedek gives a blessing and says Abraham's victories and possessions are, are to be received as gifts from God, blessings from God. They really don't belong to Abraham at all. And now I want you to look at verse 20. The end of verse 20. Says and praise be to the God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand, and then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now this is kind of interesting to me. I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, the tithe is really Old Testament law. This happened 500 years before the law even came into existence. This principle of tithing. If you go back to Cain and Abel. You know, Abel he was a shepherd. He gave his gift. It was acceptable by God. But Cain's gift was not accepted. He gave his vegetables. And people say, oh, well, it was because he didn't give an animal. It had nothing to do with it. It says the reason that Abel's gift was, he said he gave the firstborn of his flock. It's a first fruit principle. And he said he gave the fat portions of the firstborn. Now, of course, in our culture, we want lean cuisine. But... Uh, Uh, but that that was a symbol of giving the best to God. And so this principle of giving unto God goes way before the law comes into existence. And so he gives tithes to Melchizedek. And that's exactly what, what I think we do when we give, when we tithe. We're living in covenant. We're trusting the blessing of God and we're becoming a blessing to other people. And when we don't give, I think when we withhold, what we're doing is we're saying to God, I don't trust your word. I would rather afford for myself than live in a covenant of blessing between two mutually generous people. So Abraham gets some stuff right, and he gets some stuff wrong. But he needs to know more about this covenant stuff, which leads to our second encounter. It comes in chapter 15, and God has a conversation with Abraham with which uh, might be called a DPR. Anybody know what a DPR is? Define the relationship, yes. Yeah. I can speak a lot about this from experience, okay? I, you know, when a young man and a young woman have been hanging out together, and one of them will eventually say, we need to talk. I need to know if there's a commitment here. It's time to either paint or get off the ladder, poop or get off the pot. We need a DTR, a define the relationship. And usually when that happened with my old girlfriends, it was, we're done. (laughs) But but not with Kathy. (laughs) We had our defining, but we defined the relationship. And God is going to have a little DTR with Abraham. Now, you need to understand that to enter into a covenant was a very serious business in the Old Testament. In chapter 15, verse 18, it says this, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, and he said to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now, in Hebrew, the word to make a covenant meant to cut a covenant. That's how you would translate that word literally, to cut a covenant. And I'll tell you why. When people made a covenant, there would be a ceremony that was conducted and one of the things they would do is they would take some animals and they would literally cut them into two pieces and they would separate those two pieces and then they would walk between them. And it was a symbolic meaning of saying something like this when you were walking through it. May this be my fate if I don't live up to the covenant. May what happened to this animal happen to me. Now I just want to read you a verse from Jeremiah 34, 18. This is the Lord speaking. The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will treat like the calf that they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. And so when you cut a covenant, this is serious business. You can trust my word on this. May pain come to me if I don't keep this. And we have a tiny reflection of this in our old, own day, don't we? You ever remember when you are a kid, you made an oath, across my heart, and hope to what? Die. In other words, my word is so good that, that I'll die if I don't keep it. And if you really want to get serious, you should say poke a needle in my eye. You know. Uh, so when somebody violates a covenant, you don't just kind of rip it up and say, oh, don't worry about it. No, somebody, there were sanctions. There were consequences. Somebody had to pay. And there were implications to the person who violated the covenant. Now I want you to look at chapter 15, verse 8. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and yet young pigeon. And Abram Abram bought all those to him. He cut them in two, and he arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, He did not cut in half. We'll come back to that later. Now, go down to verse 17. Because in verse 13, God comes to them in a dream and explains in now 17, I want you to notice who takes the covenant walk. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and it passed between the pieces. Now, in the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, smoke and fire symbolize whose presence? God. That's right. A pillar of fire by, day, uh, by night and a cloud of smoke by day. God's presence. And so, what is it that passes through these cut animals right down the middle? Who's taking the covenant walk? The fire and the torch pass between the pieces. That's God. God is so desirous for Abraham to trust him, for somebody to trust him, that he condescends to make an oath. Abraham, I want so much for you to trust me. I want to make the covenant. I'll take the covenant walk. And may it so be to me if I don't keep the promise of the covenant that I'm making to you. I'm a promise making and a promise keeping God. One quick point here about the New Testament. I think now you understand the significance of the moment when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood in my blood. See, the old covenant between God and the sons of Abraham had been shattered, not by God, but by human beings. Somebody had to pay. The covenant had been violated. And Jesus says, I'll pay. I'll suffer. I will cut a new covenant with my body. The blood that is shed will be my blood. I will be cut. And next Sunday is Worldwide Communion Sunday. We'll be celebrating it here. I hope you make every effort to come, and I hope you'll be preparing yourself this week as you get ready to come to this new covenant meal. This, this, this commitment to celebrate the Lord's table is so important because of what it represents in terms of the covenant that God has made to us. Well, back to Abraham. God said he would make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants. There's only one problem. No kids. And he's in his 80s. And Sarah's in her 70s. Now look at chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. It's a little passive on Abraham's part, I think. You know, I mean, doesn't really argue real hard. Well, okay, honey, if you think it's a good idea, I'll do it for you. Uh, you know. So verse six or verse three. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah's wife took her Egyptian maid servant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Now the writer who Nate last week said to us that the most biblical historians believe to be Moses writing this. Is kind of repeating a phrase that took place in the fall of the garden, isn't it? In the garden it says, Eve took the fruit and she gave it to her husband. And literally it says, and he listened to the voice of the woman. Here's another fall. He listened to the voice of his wife. And Ishmael is born, and Abraham, we're told, is 86 years old. But this is not covenant behavior. So God comes again. It's another round of clarity. Now look at chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, but you will, but your name will be Abraham. For I have made you father of many nations, and I will make you very fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you and the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting promise to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Now, can you imagine Abraham hearing this? And then God says, there's going to be a little sign of this covenant. Covenants, by the way, often had signs. There were either reminders or uh, memorials to to the covenant, some type of symbol. There's going to be a sign, God says, and what I want you to do is be circumcised. Now, can you imagine Abraham hearing that at 90? No, it got the rainbow. That's a promise. Why, why didn't I have something like that? You know. You might have heard the story of the two little boys lying on gurneys in the hospital. And one boy said, the other, what are you in here for? He said, I'm in here because I'm getting my tonsils out. And the other boy said, oh. He said, that's no problem. I have my tonsils out. And... He feed the ice cream for a couple of days, and after a while, there's no problem. He said, uh, you know, I think you're going to be in good shape. So then the boy says, him, well, what are you in here for? And he says, I'm in here for circumcision. And the other boy says, wow, that's terrible. He says, I was circumcised when I was a baby, and I couldn't walk for a year. So, uh, <laughs> but, but here's the key. Here's the key. Chapter 17, verse 23. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael, and all those born in his household were bought with his money, and every male in his household was circumcised, as God told him. He obeyed that very day. But even even with that, neither he nor Sarah had perfect faith. In fact, they both laughed. Uh, Genesis 17, 17, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at this age of 90? Then in chapter 18, down to verses 10 and 12. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? A little sarcasm there, I think. This sounded absurd. Abraham, 99. Sarah, 89. And there's no Viagra in those days. I mean, how could this be? You know, Verse 13, chapter 18. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid, because she lied, and she said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. <laughs> so, And a year later, a baby born, and God told them to name the child Isaac. And Isaac means, in Hebrew, he laughed. Chapter 21, verse 6. I love this statement by Sarah. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Now, I heard one Christian comedian do a little bit on this, and so I just stole a couple of the lines. He said, everybody laughs because a child is born in the geriatric ward and Medicare paid for it. Everybody laughed because Sarah is the only person in the grocery store who bought tampers and Depends at the same time. Everybody laughed because Sarah bought strained vegetables for everybody in the family because nobody had teeth. <laughs> and everybody who hears this will laugh, she says. So she names the child, He Laughed. Chapter 21, verse 7. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and on the day that Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham with mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham very greatly because it concerned his son. I want you to notice a a little something here. might not be a, a major point, but it's just interesting. She doesn't call them by name, Hagar and Ishmael. She says, that slave woman and her son. And you know, we tend to do that when we sin against other people. We tend to dehumanize them. We try to forget that they're real people. We don't say their name. We don't look them in the eye. Remember the prodigal son uh, and his brother? He says to his father, This son of yours, you know, doesn't call him by name. You know. And Hagar is sent off into the desert with her son. And in verse 15 of chapter 21, I think it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. And then she went off and she sat down nearby, about a bow shot away. For she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. Verse 17, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, 'What What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy's crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Listen, the God of the Old Testament doesn't play favorites. Sarah and Abraham may reject Ishmael, but God doesn't. And God is just as concerned about Ishmael as He is about Isaac. And what Abraham and Isaac and their descendants, which is Israel, are supposed to do, is they're supposed to be a blessing to the rest of the world. To the nation of Ishmael. And all the descendants of Ishmael. And this brings us to our final Kind of defining encounter today. Chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Kind of he's saying, speak, I'm, I'm available, I'll obey. This is the last time that Abraham will hear God's voice in Scripture. Then he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. This is the first time in the Bible that the word love is used, and it refers to the love of a father first son. Sacrifice your beloved son. This was not just his son. This was the promise of the dream. This nation that was going to be coming forth from Isaac, and there was no one else. So for three days, three days, they walk to Moriah, and Isaac has the wood on his back. The test is: will he still trust God? This is the God of the covenant and I think you know a little the rest of the story, starting at verse 7 of chapter 22. Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Abram, Father, yes, my son, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand, and he took a knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by thorns. And he went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of the son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. You know, the writer keeps telling us about Abraham's obedience. He builds the altar, takes the wood. Now it's time, I can hardly imagine this. In a world that's filled with human sacrifice, by the way, in all the other cultures at this time, were sacrificing children. So, I don't think it would have been that unusual to Abraham to say to have God say to do this. So Abraham goes on to to uh, to do this, but God makes it clear this is not what he wants. Let's give you a closing scene in a minute. But Abraham goes on to die, and there's one final scene in Genesis 25:9. You know who buries Abraham? Isaac and Ishmael together. And it's the first time they've been reunited since Isaac's infancy. And they bury him together. So, how does God build a nation? He builds it one person at a time. He comes to us one on one in the circumstances of our lives. Where has He appeared to you? Maybe he's appeared to you in the honest counsel of a good friend. Maybe he's appeared to you in the in the voice of your spouse. My, my wife Kathy has often been my junior Holy Spirit. Perhaps it's through an obstacle or defeat that you've experienced in your life. Some sort of setback that has kind of forced you to work on a character issue in your life. Where has he met you or challenged you or where has he broken you? God meets us in the daily events of our lives. And then number two, we learn that God works to broken people. And that His promise isn't dependent on your performance. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. And therein lies the gospel. Abraham had faith in God, and God deposited righteousness over to Abraham's account. God took something that belonged only to Jesus. He's the righteous one. And he gave it to Abraham. Just as Abraham and Isaac journeyed up the mountain for that sacrifice, that long, you know, uh, awaited boy for whom the future kingdom was going to rest, the wood for the sacrifice placed on his back, so Jesus was forced to carry the wood on his back to the cross. The signs and the clues of God's grand plan of forgiveness and redemption are so woven into this story of Abraham. Because Mount Moriah, according to Second Chronicles three seven, was the location where God had also appeared to David and he built an altar there to make a sacrifice. And it's also the spot that Solomon constructed the temple on the same spot. And if you look at Genesis 22:14, it says that later generations will know this place as the mountain of the Lord, which was later called Zion, which became Jerusalem. The name Moriah is associated with the Hebrew verb meaning to provide. And in Jerusalem, as in no other place, the Lord would provide for His people through the sacrifice of His time. Well, that's enough for today. We'll take an extensive look at Lot and Sodom tomorrow. As, as the week goes on. Let me just close with only one quick story. Uh, yeah. All of us, I would imagine, have somebody who is like a guru. There's somebody who, in your life, has really meant a lot to you and, and you kind they're your go-to people. Well, one of the pastors who was most influential in my Christian upbringing and formation, spiritual formation is a guy by the name of Earl Palmer. who's the pastor of... of uh, uh, first, Pres. Berkeley, and then he went to University Pres. in Seattle, Washington. And I was at a college briefing conference in, uh, up at Forest Home one time, and I remember that Earl told this story about uh, it, was, he was speaking from Romans about this, but he said, Michelangelo, what you might do with Rembrandt, in his later years, what he would do is he would take other people's. and he would make copies of those paintings, only putting a different interpretation on the painting. So, this one painting that Rembrandt used to make his famous painting of of, uh, Abraham sacrificing Isaac, it it had Isaac lying on the altar, and he's looking up in kind of rage at his father, and Abraham is coming down, and he has that knife, and as he's coming down, there's an angel who's actually wrestling the knife out of Abraham's hand. And there's no ram in the thicket in the painting. So you get the feeling that Abraham is trudging up the mouth of God and he's going to do this and it kills him. And he's coming down and the angel says, Abraham, Abraham, no, Abraham, Abraham, no. And finally the angel has to pull him back from doing what he was going to do. And in Michelangelo's painting, or Rembrandt's pain, here is Isaac lying on the... On the the altar and Abraham has his eyes covered and he's very calmly there and as as the painting has it, the knife is already several inches out of his hand and up in the corner the angel has cupped his hand and so you get the feeling that Abraham didn't want to do it and he's trying to obey and as he's coming down the angel goes Abraham goes I don't have to do it there, in the thicket and the payment is that ram that's going to be used for the sacrifice. is <laughs> the gospel, men and women. Whatever your name is, you, know, you, know, you know, There's a sacrifice that's been provided for you, and it's on Mount Moriah, and it's the first of Jesus Christ. You don't have to do it, and that should give great relief. This. Covenant-making and this covenant-keeping God. And that's why we talk a lot about being people of the covenant. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. I'm really amazed at the humanity of Abraham, and I'm also amazed at the faith of Abraham. And I see that being so many people's story and my story that imperfect me who just wants to obey and wants to follow and then make stupid decisions and and foul up things because I take it back into my own hands. But I believe that those folks who are sitting here today want to be people of faith as well. We want to trust you. We want to take you at your word. We want to believe that you do keep your promises. We thank you for the demonstration of that in the person of Christ. And now, I just... uh, I just want to say thanks for providing this sacrifice. Thanks for making a way in the relationship. Thanks that your your desire for community did not die. And that you call us into that community.